Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations about art and culture, you might want to check out the newest releases from David's Werner Books, where we've published award-winning titles on Diane Arbus, Yayoi Kusama, and Carrie James Marshall, in addition to Ekphrasis, the critically acclaimed series of texts on art. This season, look out for books from the likes of Catherine Bernhardt, Noah Davis, and Marcel Zama, as well as new additions to the beloved Ekphrasis series. Visit davidswernerbooks.com to learn more. I'm Jonathan Anderson, and I'm the creative director of Luefe, and I have my own brand called J.W. Anderson. From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. You are trying to weirdly use your own kind of personal experience with clothing to sell a fantasy. And through that process, you will stumble across something that then will define a moment. I'm Helen Molesworth, your host for this season. Every episode features a conversation with artists, curators, writers, designers, philosophers, filmmakers, and musicians about what it means to make things today. Hey everyone, it's Helen. In this episode, I'm speaking with the fashion designer, Jonathan Anderson. You might know him as the creative director of the fashion house Lueve, or as the founder of his own label, J.W. Anderson. Both are places in which he plays with the fluidity of gender, material, high and low culture, and the very nature of authorship in ways that subvert the craft-art divide. We met up in New York to talk about the intersection between art and fashion, his early days in the fashion world, and his quest to redefine what we think of as luxury. I hope you enjoy it. It's Helen Molesworth here, and today I'm speaking with the fashion designer, Jonathan Anderson. I'm really happy to be on this podcast. So people who know me know that my greatest vice is not drugs or art, but it's actually fashion. And I think I love it maybe because I can, I can just be a fan. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is, as you said at the introduction, you are the head of your own brand, J.W. Anderson, and you are the head of a luxury heritage brand, Loewe. And when you started your career, you complicated two of the major terms of fashion. You complicated gender and you complicated luxury. These are two big words. So you sent out one of the first kind of gender neutral runway shows. You you sent it out, I think, in 2012, 13, before gender fluidity was the kind of everyday thing you'd see on a television ad or, you know, in a a serial TV show. And then at Luove, one of the first things you did was you said you didn't want the brand to be a luxury brand. You wanted it to be a cultural brand. And the first thing I think that you did to indicate that was you started a prize modeled on an art prize for craft. So here you are, you've, you've complicated these two big terms. And I'm curious if they're related for you, gender and luxury somehow, like that these were the two things that you, you poked at right away at the beginning of your career. Were you thinking about them in tandem, in parallel? Um, 
where do I start? Um, in terms of gender, the gender thing was, um, I, I grew up in Northern Ireland um, and my interaction with fashion was through TK Maxx or TJ Maxx. It was probably what they call it in America. Um, and everything that I owned or bought or my engagement with fashion was through through um, TK Maxx um, because that's where you could buy clothing. And I was always obsessed by this idea of just loving something for what it was. Not that it was either men's or women's. It was always to do with an obsession. And I started working on a menswear collection, which was about obsessions. And it was a men's collection. It was never about anything other. It was never like this is, it was based on the menswear wardrobe. It was ruffled shorts, knee-high boots. It was looking at the idea of military. It was looking at the idea of taking a military fabric and cutting it in a shift dress, which ultimately for me is one of those basic garments because it's sort of, it's probably got four seams in it. And, and I did this show, which in my head was a very normal exercise. It was like about obsessions. It was a fantasy of what I would like to wear, even though I wouldn't wear it. It was more of a fantasy of like, if I was to have the confidence to wear something, this is what I would want to wear. And I did this show and in my head, it was, uh, it was a good show. It, in my head, it was normal. And, and then the next morning I woke up and I was annihilated for it. Right. <laughs> that I was destroying menswear, I think was one of the articles in the Daily Mail. The Daily Mail actually said you were destroying menswear. Yeah, or like menswear. And why was I given a slot on the London Fashion Week? Oh, wow. So they really ripped you. And there was a lot of people who were very confused by it. And I was trying to work out why. Like, mm. you know, because, it, you know, being a young designer, this was just, you know, it wasn't that we went out. It never felt provocative to me, this show. Um, weirdly. And... Now, when I look back on it, I can see where it touched on different things. But it was really looking at my own relationship to clothing and the people around me who were not probably dealing with gender like we deal today. Because I think this whole idea of uh, gender um, in the last 10 years has escalated very quickly. Um, it is sort of, and I think... The, the internet and everything has helped that mm. to build new subcultures and things. But when, when I was at university, there was no um, conversation of that at all. It was more about you wore it because you were obsessed by it. And the idea of just amazing imagery of a man or a very amazing imagery of a woman or, or whatever way you want to identify, ultimately. And then when that show happened, I think what it did was it kind of hit on a thing where the materials were very masculine like it was like a duffel fabric it was men's suiting but it was cut in a way that was about different body proportions mm. and I think this is where it became very simple but it seemed quite disturbing for people were you aware of the simplicity is was that part of the process to distill something down to like you said four seams in a shift dress or a very basic menswear kind of suiting. 
Yeah, I, I just wanted something that was blunt. Mm-hmm. That there was no kind of, uh, you couldn't question it, I think was my biggest thing. Right. You know? So after that, then I, I realized that something shifted and happened. Because I think some of my heroes would have been like Jean-Paul Gaultier, which I think he tackled gender in a very different way. You know, it was a one of the first like fashion books I ever had was on him. Mm. And I was obsessed by one image of a guy in like a zebra printed coat smoking and like with full makeup on it. It was right. like, and it was a very different approach to it. Like when he did the Jewish collection or when he, you know, did the Eskimo inspired thing. It was very kind of like, it, there was a more kind of uh, pragmatic approach to it ultimately. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think when I was studying and when we, when I started doing shows, the internet had not got to the point of where it was. Um, I think the idea of my friends speaking about gender was not something you did, mm. weirdly. Mm-hmm. Um, being in Britain, we're very bad at talking anyway. And in Ireland, even worse. Like, no one talks about their feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it somehow did something to people that I didn't know. Right. And... And this has always fascinated me with this collection. Right. And weirdly, it's like this now that I'm older and I look back on it and when museums request to for acquisitions, it is this one show. Right. (laughs) It is crazy Um, because I think it did something in in the conversation of gender without it being about gender. Right. So and I actually think now when I become more at one with that collection because ultimately as a designer you're forced to reject everything anyway and you're always moving on so everything is old right um the minute you put it on a catwalk so this kind of fluidity that happened around the the gendered body and the gendered garment for me it's related to how you talk about craft and um i mean i'm someone who's very I just decided like a few years ago that the craft art distinction was not interesting to me anymore. So I refused to engage in it. But you took a different tack. You kind of elevated it and and through the prize and through your work at Loewe. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what that word means in your context and, and how you are using it to eat away at certain other ideas. Well, the the prize ultimately came about when I joined the Weve, there was a the Weve Foundation for Poetry in the Spanish language. Oh, how lovely. And I and it was it was I was going to these little events for each year that they were doing. And I remember saying to um I can't remember who it was at LVMH, I said I, I would like to kind of start a craft prize not knowing that that was going to entail a lot of work. Um, because I felt like I personally was collecting craft. It was something that I felt was a way for me to get into the brand, which ultimately is people working with their hands and making something. Or sharing of skill is one thing. You know, this idea of making a bag. I think people have this very strange thing with luxury, which is it grows on trees. No humans involved in it. It's just made by machines and monstrous companies that put giant billboards of people holding bags. And I wanted to 
be able to show people that it's not like that. It's mm-hmm. sort of like you might have fifth generation, you might have, you know, people who have learned how to cut a skin or learned how to stitch in a certain way that no machine can ever do. Right. So I thought by doing the craft prize, I was able to show this in a more, um, more of an iconography ultimately. So like making a ceramic pot. People, I think, like Ghost, the film, they they will, you know, everyone knows that there is something about this idea of physicality. There is a there is a sort of sexual nuance to it. There is there is the kind of, you know, the isolated hero in the the potter or the weaver or Mm. the basket maker. Whereas in Weird Way, luxury had lost this because I when I first uh, did my proposition to LVMH was like luxury is dead. It's over. Mm. And my whole thing was that I would like to turn the web into a cultural brand. Right. Which. And when um, you said luxury is dead, it's over. What did you mean? Or what were you hoping for? I was hoping, well, for me, it was more about the meaning of the word. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I I think I once boiled it down to that, you know, when you go to Tesco's, you can get luxury sausages. Mm -hmm. And I felt like if you could buy sausages that were luxury, then bags were like sausage. This was, it was getting very, right. it was the meaning of the word had just lost everything. Right. You know what I mean, and I think the idea of luxury became this idea of barrier. And I thought I didn't want a barrier in luxury. I wanted people to be able to be accessible to it. Even if you couldn't afford it, it wasn't about that. You could go into a store and you could engage with something and leave with something. You know what I mean? Like mm. I remember when I first went to a Prada store, I couldn't afford anything, but I was able to leave with a magazine. And it I think I still have this magazine. And it mm. was like, it was so beautiful. And I felt right. like I was part of it by just cutting out the word Prada and sticking on my wall. I think fashion lost this a bit. It was, it was this barrier put up that they ultimately to... I think actually the art world is similar to this as well, where mm-hmm. they put the barrier of like, you cannot have, therefore you wanted more. And I was thinking, well, if it was culturally rewarding to people, then you, w- you would be able to build value through the idea of storytelling or mm-hmm. the idea of like stuff that you don't know about. So I think this was like a big mission for me um, because I felt I couldn't work inside a platform that did not look to the future of right. where things could go, which I think in hindsight, when I look at it now, I can start to see that things have changed in the last 10 years um, very fast. Right. And I think some of the questions that I, in a weird way, like a case study, you, it's sometimes you have to have the grand statement to kind of nearly do the thesis on. I just had the luxury of doing the thesis on Loewe. Right. On my own brand, where it was like, I'm going to test these things out on a global market and have the backing of someone like Bernard Arno to right. let me do this. And then it, in my mind, if I imagine telling your story, you know, from 30,000 feet, as they say, both of those, the, the gender and the craft line and the luxury conversation all kind of come together in the infamous knit sweater for Harry Styles. Yeah. Right? So um, for those listeners who don't know, Harry Styles wears, you know, this knit sweater and on a, in a stage show. 
the internet goes apeshit. Um, and you release the pattern for the sweater, basically saying, make it yourselves. And I really naively, I thought, oh, I could make myself that sweater. <laughs> I opened the pattern. And even though the pattern is ostensibly an easy pattern, it's also incredibly like difficult, arduous. I remembered like, oh yeah, right. It's easy if you look at it in the picture and it's easy if Harry Styles wears it and it's all glamour. But if you're actually going to make this thing yourself, you're going to have to buckle down and really engage in this, in tactility and math and color and all of these big concept-driven ideas. And I just... I guess I'm curious. I mean, did you have any idea that the gender and craft thing would get so like beautifully knitted together in that Harry Styles moment? Like, could you have known something like that? No, I think those are those things are just like genuine accidents. I think this one it still puzzles me today. But mm -hmm. I think when I look at it, I think it is uh, a kind of climaxing of all these different things at once. So I think... The pandemic was a very big thing to do right. with this. I, I think this idea of the the idea of pop culture, the idea of fame, you know, like someone like Harry Styles is famous. You know, it's, it's mind boggling, isn't it? It's it just can is, you imagine? Yeah, do you know he is just famous with all, like, it's it's huge, right? So by wearing something like that cardigan, which ultimately is made up of rectangles. Right. Um, very complex rectangles. Um, I not. I used to be able to knit. Not as good as that. Um, it is hand knit. And what I think was interesting is it was about people during the pandemic looking at this idea of an icon. So I don't think they cared about J.W. Anderson, the brand. I think they cared about the brand of Harry Styles. Do you know what I mean? I do agree with you there. <laughs> and I think they looked to him and they, it was nearly in a weird way. I think this probably happened in the 70s, you know, where people would have remade things because someone in the Rolling Stones wore it. Or and when you go to vintage shops today, you will still see these sort of right. jackets that were like nearly like amateurly produced because Hendrix wore something or, you know. I don't know if they still exist because I haven't been in this kind of shop in a long time. But it used to be in the 70s and 80s that you could buy a pattern like you could buy a pattern for a YSL dress, yeah. a Vogue pattern detail, or you could, you know, get the knit pattern for a Ralph Lauren sweater or something. And so there was this culture of um, predominantly women making, you know, um, designer goods, but making them themselves. Yeah, like, and I think it's through this action of doing. And I think of all the kind of rewarding things that I've ever done in my very short career is ultimately it is those things that are done not by me that are the most interesting, you know, because they're out of your control. Like watching 15 year olds, like that sweater has been knitted over 20,000 times. We have found, we, we have collected every single image of it. And I like, you know, I donated Harry's sweater. He very, kindly helped to do, make this happen but the very the girl in Argentina who started it as a TikTok she was able to donate hers and Harry donated the original one that we had given him to the VNA and it is kind of amazing now to see it on a mannequin right 
at the V&A, and then you realize that that is something that went 360, because I think it took in a political thing. Mm-hmm. I think it took in a health crisis. I think it took in the idea of technology and fame. Um, and I think it transcends this idea of making, this idea of if if people knew, I, I think people would respect fashion more if they knew there is actual skill involved. Right. I think there is this thing which is, I, I think... I think that's why I'm so drawn to art sometimes, but I feel it's like this a, a fantasy for myself, which is, I, I think Marc Jacobs is probably the same, where that you, you, I have so much more respect somehow, because I feel like I would love to have the the kind of leisure to, or the time to mm. process things, even though I would probably get bored very quickly. But there's something that I look up to artists because there's something where there is time to procrastinate there is time to kind of take the world and and produce this one thing whereas fashion has this like very hard rap because it's sort of we are the capitalists we are the the billboard we are excess we are all these different things but at the same time when you strip it back and you look at these individual things the the skill level that goes into them is is mind-blowing yeah. You know, and I think, and this is my, now I've actually gone on a bit of a crusade to kind of be the kind of promoter of that, which is fashion can be um, an incredible type of art form. Mm. So this is a great moment because I wanted to talk to you. One of, the th- one of the terms that fashion and art really share is this mining of the past and pulling it into the present. I think that's one of artwork's most essential functions in a way, is that it's this constant sort of tidal, you know, incoming, outcoming, pulling in of the past into the present. And one of the ways that we talk about that is we use the word the archive, you know, and fashion people always use the word archive whenever anyone is appointed to a a, a you know a historical house the first interview is always like well i spent a year in the archive and i i just i have to ask one is just like a super pedestrian question like what the fuck does that actually mean like when fashion people say like i spent a year in the archive of loewe like what does it mean that you do that the archive for me when designers go into the archive uh, you're ultimately fondling legacy. Mm-hmm. You know, you're kind of going in there and you're kind of... Are you like literally touching old garments? Like, do you keep yeah. a garment? Do you keep fabric? Do you keep sample? Like, yeah. It depends on which patterns. house. It depends which house. Mm-hmm. You know, like, for example, Loewe had a, a kind of... Loewe, for me, was a great manufacturer that became a brand, ultimately. And that's me probably being very harsh. Mm. But... It was very good at making things. Right. It then in the 70s became known for a bag called the Amazona. Right. It was like a kind of liberated, it was a soft structure bag. And, and then it kind of like went in and out of fashion and whatever. It has like an all right archive. I mean, we have stuff from the royal family. We have like, you know, a crocodile trunk. We have got right. like, you know, garments that were done by Karl Lagerfeld when there was like a licensing deal and Giorgio Mane once did something. And Right. It's had a kind of like bizarre manufacturing history. Whereas there are some brands like Christian Dior, which have a insane uh, 
clothing history because it is a it was a it is a brand that was built on a fashion language like Yves Saint Laurent, like Chanel. Right. Um, whereas if you look at something like Louis Vuitton or Loewe or Hermes, they were built on leather goods. So there's very different types of history within those things. You're trying to work out the DNA ultimately of the right. brand. In the end, you have to reject it all to be able to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the thing you realize that when you see the archive and you go through it, you're like, oh, I'm going to really interpret all this stuff and make it part of the DNA. And then you're like, okay, no, this works today because we don't travel that way. Or um, why would you make something out of seal skin? Or, right. you know, like, or why make a crocodile bag when you could just make a leather bag or a vanity case with like 27 items? They're amazing things to look at. Right. They're completely useless now. Yeah. They're beautiful objects. Right. They tell us about history, but so in a weird way, that's when designers go into the archive. You're trying to work out the DNA. And there's two types of brands. I think there is ones that were built on fashion languages and ones that were built on other goods. And I think uh, there is big fundamental differences on that. Right. Uh, because I think, you know, the Wefe was never built on a fashion language. So in a weird way, my job, I always felt was I needed to put a fashion language into a leather goods brand. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think... When you look at someone like John Galliano going into Dior, he had one of the hardest jobs, which is like to elevate a luxury brand that was built upon clothing and reinterpret it for the present day, you know, and that's a very difficult thing to do. Right. Because ultimately you have Dior did something. Indeed. Clothing. Coco Chanel did something. You know, these are like quite, it's like Mutual Prada did something with clothing. And in a weird way, she put a fashion language into Prada. Right. And then, which then became bigger than the leather good. The the language of it became bigger. Do you see what I mean? Indeed. So it makes it, this is so useful to have you break this down like this because I've never I could be thought about it. Wrong. That, no, I think you're quite, <laughs> I think you're quite right. And I wonder what that means for the creation of J.W. Anderson then. Like to create, what does it mean to build ground up? You say so you don't have an archive to resist or to throw away. Instead, you have to somehow, what exactly? Just like ride slipstream on the present. What what are the tools that you use as an artist to do that in your studio slash atelier slash you know? I think it's a lot harder mm. ultimately because ultimately you are you are trying to weirdly use your own kind of personal experience with clothing to sell a fantasy, and through that process like the Ruffle collection, you will stumble across something that then will define a moment. You know, Dior was defined in one moment, you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> uh, Coco Chanel, I think, was defined in one moment. And it, the idea was so strong that it was able to, the idea was able to stand the test of time. Um, this is very difficult. Um, and it can take sometimes you nearly it could take a period of time where you're not actually doing it anymore and then it sort of makes sense fashion could be quite cruel in that way Mm. you know um but it's it is a hard one doing your own brand is very difficult because it's very personal 
And it is very sometimes hard to detach yourself from the the personal part of it. I think that's why I enjoy actually doing other brands because I feel like I am I am kind of harboring a different character somehow. Mm. And there is a detachment and you can kind of fuck with it because it is you're not fucking with yourself. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Um so it's right, like a very right, right. it's a kind of very strange uh feeling when doing another brand because for me it's like a character study it's like you're kind of building it's like Stanislavski you know, mm. like coming up with and believing the character you know it's, right. like it's a very, kind of method acting yeah. in a way and you're mm. trying to live and breathe this thing and being able to reject it as well you know and and this is why when you when doing your own brand it's it's, it's very difficult because um for me the brand my own brand is never i've always felt like I, like this is that it has never been about a financial gain my own brand you know i don't care what size it is for me it is a very important kind of canvas ultimately mm. because it allows me to incubate ideas and i'm fine for those ideas to go out and make people lots of money when they right. do a version of it because i i think that's what fashion's about I mean, I think you were talking about this idea of like appropriation and things like this. I, when I design something and I put it out in the world, it is out in public domain. Full stop. I don't, it can annoy me, but it is the most amazing feeling. And I think the history of fashion is about that. The history of fashion is about pulling things from the past into the present, rejecting them, going in a fashion, out of fashion. Right. I think what happened in the last five or six years, which I find incredibly disturbing, actually, and I think it's happening in um, all parts of creative, is this idea of ownership. Because I don't think the history of art was ever built on that. Um, my very poor uh, history of art lesson in it is that, um, which I am not very good at in the history of art, but when I go to the museum in Madrid, uh, the Prado, you can see a Rubens and a Titian of Adam and Eve side by side. Yep. Identical. These are some of the greatest painters in history. And it was because ultimately the painter was ultimately um, a workshop. And it was about learning. And the Prado is the ultimate museum for that because everybody who's in it kind of knew, you know, by the time you get to Goya, you understand that Goya has, in fact, been walking through it, like walking yeah. through those people. So, you know, I mean, like, and literally pulling all of that history with him up until, so, you know, the black paintings. It's and, incredible. And, and when I see, uh, I've, I've been, over the pandemic, I became really obsessed by, uh, painting in the Tudor period in Britain um, because ultimately someone like Holbein was seen as a craftsman. Um, there was many painters who were fantastic painters who we will never know the names of um, who painted some of the most powerful people of the Tudor court because they were seen as craftspeople and when you had Holbein work for you, it was like employing the person who made the greatest tapestries. 
And there was something about this idea of duplication and this idea of uh, looking to different time periods, even in that time period. When we stretch forward to present day, we have now become this obsessed culture that is will lock onto the idea of knowledge to use as a weapon in a weird form of like the pun word, I think, of the last five years is cancel culture, which is to kind of say, well, you didn't do this, someone else did, therefore, what is it? No one is able to recontextualize things because there is no bandwidth for people to understand to be able to explain the situation mm. or to kind of give it a uh, a meaning, do you mean? That's why I think, you know, I always, um, you know, there's something in surrealism that I find is very interesting because, or, or the ready-made. Um, and in art, they have this amazing thing to get away with it. It is this like a fantastic thing where it's sort of like, you know, it's like Duchamp. It's like... Yep. Uh, we legalize stealing, which and I and I think it's a kind of an amazing thing, because you cannot learn throughout learning through the past or relearning through uh, repainting Adam and Eve, because you learn through that. In culture today, we don't want that. We want. We, we. Um, it's nearly like. Uh, it's like recreational outrage, that we are outraged by anything that we no longer want to have a dialogue with because we can hide behind something to say it. So I could, it's like, you know, I don't need to be told about the history of fashion. I know when I've looked at Christian Dior as a reference because maybe Christian Dior as a reference is interesting right now. Right. Um, I think the more that we get kind of sucked into this sort of process, which I think is happening I think it happens in architecture. I think it happens, it probably happens in art a lot, is that we then prevent progression because everyone is afraid to do something, to question things mm. through their own art form. So it could be like you do stained glass. You might look to 16th century stained glass because, because it was relevant today. And, and this is where I think... Uh, for me, uh, in the last three collections, I've kind of like, I've kind of been more kind of, I actually have gone away. I think the pandemic helped me to just be like, I have I have no care of what you think anymore. Because ultimately, I do this for myself as a creative journey. I enjoy it. I I want to tell people what I like. And if you don't like it, go somewhere else. And I think... And that is about me being obsessed by art. That is about me being obsessed by a film or a church or uh, a basket or a cross person in Korea. Or it can be, you know, like my, you know, at the moment we're doing, working on a thing with like Chinese monochromes, which for me is like one of the most fun, fascinating mm. parts of Chinese history because it's sort of like, it was like they were before everyone. And I think it's about that sharing and willing to do a creative dialogue today, which I think is what is my fantasy right. within fashion. Because I think that's what Saleron, that's what all these people were able to do. And I feel like this is where we're in a very complex 
moment in history where we could lose everything because n- no one is willing no one is willing to be disliked mm. because everyone wants to be everyone wants to like button well that's the only option they that's partly <laughs> the problem with the 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 interweb is that thumbs up thumb, thumbs down modality one of the things i hear you saying is that um appropriation is one, a form actually of moving things forward, that you've got to kind of do this two steps forward, one step back movement. It's a dance in a way with history. But the other thing you said at the very beginning was that you put things out into public and then there they are. And they get to have a life without you, which is, you know, what curating is too, right? You take these objects that actually have a life that they have and you assemble them in these new arrangements and you're hoping for the dialogue, but it's partly because they do have a public life. Things do have a public life. And um, one of the things I was real, I was really turned on by the, the moment when you made the, the pattern for the Harry Styles sweater, as I'm calling it now, that you made it open source, that you understood like, oh, yes, I made this thing. I authored this thing. But this thing now has gone out into the world, has a life that is so much bigger than me, that is so beyond just me and my idea. So share, you know, and then like in that gesture, there's no telling what can happen in that appropriation gesture. Um, So I find it really interesting that there is all of this anxiety and anger around appropriation when I myself also find it to be I mean, as a writer, there's nothing more beautiful than the footnote. I get to take what someone else has said. As long as I put those quotations around it and let you know where I grabbed it from, I can have it in the flow of my text. You know, like it's we're collectively we're doing something bigger than us. Right. We hope that it has some kind of life beyond just this moment. And it's, it's about enjoying it. Yeah. I think this is it's about enjoying ideas or enjoying other people's ideas. Right. You know, the, uh, the, there's been, I think if I had like several moments of like seeing um, something where I was like, I think the Pontormo painting of, like is a very good example where, where I kind of look at something and I'm like, I really wish I could have painted like that. Like as a naive, as a very naive reaction. Like right. to be able to kind of, uh, make a kind of kaleidoscopic, swirling bonanza. And those colors. And the colors. And the, that periwinkle. And oh my God. And you're just, when you look at it, you're kind of like, I want that. I want that as much as I want a TV or mm-hmm. I want a pair of trainers. When I look at that, I want that essence. There has been another, like a recent moment that I had this... Um, I think he's one of the greatest living artists, like for me, and was going to Matthew Marks for a show that I didn't actually anticipate to go and see, but I went in and saw Robert Gobert's show at Matthew Marks, I think it was a year ago. And he, for me, he is like one of the most, like I've had, I have rifted on him because I, and he probably hates it. But because I think I love that he has a meticulousness to remake something and to recontextualize the idea of 
you, you know, like the 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 wax chest half woman half man for me is like the, the it. I remember putting it in disobedient bodies and just being uh, so emotionally kind of like if only I could do that. There is nothing better than that. There's nothing that I love to be able to see an object like that that questions every form of tactile reality. The only time that I've ever seen something in, in the last like five years that did that was was his suit at Matthew Mark. It was like, why can fashion not do that? You know? Gilbert's so extraordinary. He's a, and, Bob is an incredible artist. And he and and it was just I looked at that jacket I think I was there for an hour and a half being obsessed about the idea that you could go through into another dimension because maybe it was way more exciting to go to the other side right and at the same time before you got to it there was a bird's nest on an exhaust pipe I think if I remember right um and for me that is when you look at something and it influences you. This is important because I feel like there is geniuses in this world. Mm. For me, that fuel up when I see that is unbelievable. Like it, I, I can scrap everything just to be able to have that feeling because it doesn't happen often. No. And as a designer, when you're doing eight collections a year, and you're putting things out, sometimes you just have to be in awe about the jacket on the wall with a fountain behind it. <laughs> yeah. For me, uh, this is like, this is what fashion, this is where I feel like that is excitement to me. And I feel like if I could even give 1% into that, into the clothing that I do, then I feel that I can, I am able to exist in this creative world somehow. Right. Right. Somehow. Well, <laughs> I mean, it is, it is, it's been really great to talk with you. Um, I want to just thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. It was great to talk with you. No, thank you so much. I have, I've really enjoyed it. It's like maybe going to therapy in a weird way. I feel like I've learned more about myself right now than in, in many interviews. So, um, no, thank you so much for having me. That's great. That'll be $375. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. If you like this episode, please follow, rate, and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It really does help the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you join us here next time. <laughs>